Welcome back to Sensible Chat, the podcast committed to helping you learn positive money mindsets, destroy debt, reduce financial stress, and break the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. We're chatting with Michelle Kagan, CPA and author of over a dozen books, including Retirement 101, which she'll talk about today. Afterwards, Sensible Bobby will share some tips to save for retirement no matter how tight your budget is. So right now, let's get to the bully of budgeting, the generator of greenbacks, the mistress of money. It is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. You know, just thinking about the word retirement can be overwhelming. How much money will we need to survive? Will we have enough to do the things we want? What about medical care? And when we're young, it's easy to push those thoughts out of our mind. We've got plenty of time to think about that and plan for it later, right? After all, we've got enough daily stress to deal with without adding retirement into the mix. Problem is, a lot of us push those thoughts away for far too long. Then you wake up one day and realize it's not really that far away and we have nowhere near enough saved. Or it's going to take a really long time to save what we need. Either way, there's no time like the present to get started. No matter how old you are or what your financial picture looks like today, you need to be saving for retirement, even if it's only a couple bucks at a time. Now, I know I'm not the only one who's heard time and time again throughout life from older people that they wish they'd started saving sooner. But a lot of times we don't hear the specifics of why. Does it really make that much difference? So let's dive into some of those specifics, learn a bit about why it's so important, and find out some easy ways to get started with the woman who wrote the book on retirement. Welcome back, class. Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Michelle Kagan, CPA, financial mentor, and author of more than a dozen books and countless articles on accounting and finance. With more than 20 years of experience, Michelle focuses on helping people navigate their personal and business finances to solidify their financial futures. She has dedicated her career to helping people gain financial independence. Michelle, welcome back to Sensible University, and thanks for being our guest professor for the third time. Thank you so much for inviting me, Bobby. I always love talking to you. Oh, I always learn a ton from you. So I am really excited about this. And by the way, you are a machine. I mean, you've written like four or five books. I don't even know in the last year. Where are you finding the time for all of this? I'm a vampire and never sleep. <laughs> Great answer. Well, you you give a lot of fantastic information. And today we're going to talk about Retirement 101. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about another one of your new books, Debt 101. So super excited about that. But when we first talked about doing this interview, I was kind of grappling about whether or not to cover the subject of retirement on a podcast that's focused on budgeting, saving, and debt payoff. But really, all of those things are part of planning for retirement. So is it ever too early to start planning? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, people do tend to put their finances into buckets, you know, debt, saving for emergency, saving for school. And 
by looking at each tree and not the whole forest, they can actually end up doing things that are not best for their overall finances. So I think looking at it all as one big pile actually helps people achieve better financial situations. And it's never, ever too early to start thinking about retirement because whether you want to work until you're 80 or you want to work until you're 20, at some point, you're going to want to stop working. (laughs) I feel like retirement is more about having the freedom to choose whether you want to work than deciding to stop work. That's a great way of looking at it. And procrastination is such a huge derailment to retirement. So even if we have decades to go before we decide to quit working, what can we do right now that will bring us closer to a comfortable retirement and take away some of the stress that comes from waiting too long to start planning? Honestly, do something today. Anything. Any amount you put today is going to be worth more than money you put in two years from now. Even if you put in $300 or $500 in a whole year, it's more than nothing. And you'll never have more time on your side than you do today. Definitely. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that we do, you know, when we talk about budgeting and debt payoff and all that stuff, that also leads to a better retirement plan, right? I mean, we can make sure our health is better and pay off debt and make sure we have the right insurances and stuff like that as well. Absolutely. I mean, This is one of my less popular beliefs, but I actually think that paying off debt should be simultaneous to retirement savings and before any other kind of savings. Because debt, especially high interest debt, does more to sabotage your finances than lack of savings. I remember when we talked about that, because before you talked about that mindset, I always was of the belief that savings should come first. But you're right. I mean, the way I look at it now, after having learned that from you, is that, you know, if you're saving money, but you still have debt to pay off, then you're kind of saving for the what ifs that may or may not happen. But the debt is guaranteed and it's going to have to be paid off regardless. Right. And also, I mean, by putting money into two percent savings, while not paying off 18% debt, you're actually losing money every time you put that money into savings. So that brings up an interesting point because you said that you feel like debt payoff and retirement investing should be simultaneous before, you know, like an emergency fund or something like that. But if I'm trying to pay off debt, at 18%, does it make sense to be investing, which could only be four or 5%? I mean, it depends on the year. You know, last year was huge for the markets, but does it make sense to be putting that money aside for retirement when you're still trying to pay off debt? Yes, it is. And here's why. Because 4% a year is this year, but you're saving for retirement over 20 or 30 years. So the money you put in now has more time to grow and will grow bigger than money you put in later. So $20 a month, like literally any amount, is better than putting nothing in retirement now because of the time factor. That makes a lot of sense. And then compound interest on top of that, right? Right. That's the whole point of, and plus, not only do you get the benefits of compounding, which is like your money earns interest, and then that interest earns interest, and then that interest earns interest. So your money starts growing all by itself without you doing anything. But in a retirement account specifically, you also don't have the tax drag that makes your investments grow more slowly like you do in regular investment and savings accounts. So by putting some money in there and prioritizing it along with debt pay down over emergency savings, 
you'll end up in a better place later on. And then when people say to me, well, my budget's really tight, I can't put anything in retirement right now. I say, well, what's going to happen when you're 75? I mean, that's the thing. If your budget's tight now, what's it going to be when you're 75 and you don't have retirement savings? That's going to be worse. Can't argue with that, certainly. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then I would assume that you're paying off your debt, you're investing for retirement at the same time, and then once your debt is paid off, then that's when you go for the emergency savings, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's actually a really unpopular view to pay off debt before saving for emergencies because they're like, well, if you have an emergency and you don't have any savings, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to put it on the credit card. Right. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, but for your overall financial picture, you're better off getting rid of high interest debt than putting money in emergency savings. You just are better off overall doing that. I totally agree because again, when you think about it, you know, if you're putting away that money, it's a what if, but what if I save for a year and a half and don't pay down that debt, but nothing happened. I could have paid down all that debt in that time. And now I've still got the debt and nothing happened. Now let's go back to the bucket strategy thing that you were talking about, or well, actually you were talking about buckets of money, but in the book, you talk about bucket strategies that can be used in retirement. And I have some questions about that, but first of all, explain what those buckets are. Again, this is sort of my way of doing it. A lot of people don't agree with me, but I like to put my money in time buckets. What I need soon, what I need medium sort of soon and what I don't need for a long time. So money I need within a year, that's my soon bucket. Money I need between, you know, one and five years, that's my medium bucket. Anything I don't need for at least five years is my later bucket. And that helps me figure out what to do with that money because money I need right now, I cannot risk losing a cent of that. That goes into FDIC like a bank account. It's not going to earn a lot, but it has no possibility of losing. So the money I know I cannot live without within a year, I don't risk that at all. The medium money, I take a little bit more risk with because there's still some time to build it back up if there's a dip or something, but I still want it in a relatively conservative places because I don't really want to lose it or it could push my timelines back. And the later money, I'm like, all in, just go earn money. I'll see you later. That's a great way of looking at it because you know I'm a huge fan of separating your money. If you have it all together, it's so hard to keep track of what's what and you know what you need to do with what parts of that money. So can we use those same buckets before we retire to assure that our financial foundation remains strong throughout our lives? Well, yeah, I do that now even. Right now, for example, my retirement money is all in later because I'm not retired yet. So I don't need that money right now. But I do that with my regular life. Like the money I know I need this year, I do not screw around with that. That is money that I put somewhere that it will not lose money. I mean, I try to get the highest return on it I can, but it's more important to me to not lose money I need that I know I need soon. This isn't emergency savings. This is money I know I need to pay for, you know, medical care or whatever. I cannot be without this money. It's my mortgage. It's what I know I need. And it's very easy to open separate savings accounts, even within your same bank for those purposes, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put my medium money in a savings account. At the very least, I would probably put it in some kind of conservative funds. 
maybe a part of it in a money market if I knew I needed some of it within two years as opposed to five years out. And yeah, you can, I mean, you can put them in the same place. You can put them in different places. I'm a big fan of diversifying in every possible way. And I literally personally have savings accounts in three different banks because (laughs) I trust no one. Right. (laughs) Probably a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I have like one in a credit union, one in a local bank and one in a big national bank. It's just, I like to spread stuff out. Sure. Because you just don't know what's ever going to happen ever. And I, you know, my money is spread out. My investments are spread out. There's a lot of people who are trying to balance caring for their parents and caring for their adult children with planning for their own retirement. And even sometimes, you know, even if it's just they're balancing caring for parents with paying for their kids' college education, how common is it for people to go too far and put their own retirement in jeopardy when they're trying to help their family? It's crazy common. I mean, lots of people do it. People use their retirement money for a lot of things to start businesses, to buy houses, to take care of family members. Family members is a really big one because, you know, caring for a parent usually involves a lot of health care, which is real expensive. And they don't have the extra bandwidth in their normal budget. If they had their normal budget, they'd be fine. But taking care of a parent on top of it, which involves more than just doctor visits, it's you have to pay for their food. If they're living with you, you do their errands and they say, oh, I'll pay you back. And their prescriptions are $300. You're never going to see that money again. Because if you're caring for them, you're caring for them. It happens. And I'm not blaming the parents. But the truth is a lot of parents that are in the situation where they need a child to help take care of them need financial help as well because maybe they've already run through a lot of their own money. Yeah, people pull out of retirement because they can't make ends meet with their normal budget when they're also caring for extra people. So what do we do about that? Because obviously we want to be there when our parents or our kids need us. But at the same time, we have to also plan for our own future or we're just going to end up putting it on the next person, too. So what can people do if they're trying to balance that and coming up short? Are there other resources they can turn to? There actually are. There are a lot of resources and I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but they are definitely in the book. There are a lot of resources that can help you care for aging parents. There are a lot of resources that can help grandparents caring for grandchildren for whatever reason. There are not really resources to help parents that are supporting adult children. <laughs> I say supporting, not just letting them live with you, but actually, you know, if the child, if the adult child, which happens for lots of reasons, isn't working or can't find work or whatever, and you're supporting them while they live there. Ideally, and nobody's really doing this yet, but maybe people will start to, ideally, as a family, before any of this happens, you kind of sit down and plan and say, look, as a family, we have family finances, you know, know what resources your parents do have, know what resources your kids do have, so that it's not always falling on you in the middle to support everybody else. And that's the family planning sessions that you talk about in the book, right? Right. Well, because, right, if you're caring for older parents, chances are they're getting Social Security. Well, are you using that money? Are they giving you that money as you're caring for them? If not, maybe they should be giving you a part of it. It really depends on the particular situation. But as a family talking about money together, which is very hard for people to do, but as a family talking about money together really helps 
defray and again, sort of diversify where the sources of money are coming from. They don't always have to be coming from the people in the middle of the adult children and the parents. Yeah, I would think so, because at the very least, you might find some resources that you weren't even aware were available among the family because nobody had just kind of really thought about them until you started sitting down and brainstorming or having these conversations. Right. I mean, like, for example, if an adult child loses their job and has to move back home and can't find a job, well, maybe in their old job, they have a 401k. It's actually better to pull out of their 401k if they're not retired and you are and you have no more really money coming in to pull out of theirs instead of yours. That's why, again, it's a big family discussion because pulling that money out comes with a tax penalty. So it's really a multi-generational discussion needs to happen about what is the best source to pull from from this. And if we're pulling from my money all the time, how is some of that going to be brought back so I don't end up in this situation? And it might make sense to talk to a tax or financial professional like yourself about this stuff, right? Because even though they can brainstorm together and come up with some ideas and some plans, really somebody like you, you know, who has the experience and knows tax law and everything would be better suited to help them, you know, avoid those tax situations or make the most of the benefits that they have, right? Yes. And also, I mean, honestly, having a neutral person there who's not emotionally involved in the situation can help look at things a different way than the people who are worried about themselves and their family. When you're all worried about that and it's very emotional, it's very hard to say, well, how much money do you have? And are you asking me to pay you for taking care of me? I mean, (laughs) those conversations happen. So having a person come in who's like, hey, this is about your whole family and what's going to happen to all of you and not just, you know, one thing at a time. And it helps remove some of the emotion from the situation where people may start feeling defensive or it's really about what's the best use of this money? How do you keep your money away from the IRS so you guys have the chance to use your own money? And which is the best pool to pull from? A big one that I always hear people talk about is parents pulling from their retirement accounts to pay for their kids' college. And I actually had an experience, my sister-in-law and I were talking about this a couple years ago, and she said, you know, I don't have anything put away for him yet. Maybe I should take some money out of my 401k to do it. And I had just read about this and found something that's so simple, but you never really think about. And somebody had written, and I'm sure this is very common, but somebody had written, you know, there are student loans, but there are no retirement loans. That is correct. And, you know, in the book that's coming up, there's a lot about student loans and why it's better to avoid them in the first place. Yeah. By the way, it's hard to recoup money that comes out of your 401k for a bunch of reasons. One is if you're not of retirement age, 59 and a half, you're going to automatically lose 10% of that to tax penalties plus 20% to taxes. So if you need $10,000, you actually need to take out more than that in order to have the $10,000 left to pay something. So for the overall financial picture, really it does much more harm to the situation to pull out of a 401k than to look at other potential sources. Absolutely. Or to start at community college for a year or to try to get scholarships mm-hmm. and, and things like that. 
Yeah, and that's, of course, the better way to go than the student loans if you can help it. Because like I said, I mean, there is that option there and that's better than the 401k. But there are so many ways out there now to go to school without the student loans. I think it's really more about people realizing that, you know, if you can do some research and look into resources rather than just going the path of least resistance, there's a lot of money to be saved out there, I think. Absolutely. Michelle, how common is it for you to encounter a client that wants to send their kid to a perfect school, but is totally unwilling to look at some alternative methods? As you suggest, the junior college. I went to junior college and I I took out some loans, paid them all back, got some grants. So I did a little bit of homework before I just thrust myself into loans that were going to be almost impossible to pay back. How often is, is that something that you encounter with clientele? Honestly, lately, not as much. I mean, maybe because of the weight of their own student loans, they don't want that to go down another generation. So people are are really a lot more, I think, aware of the consequences of student loans and are trying to avoid them. I mean, more of the people I'm working with are really looking at alternatives. And by the way, I went to community college for two years and then I worked my way for the other two at a state school that I could afford. And how many times have you been asked, because you are a CPA, how many times have you been asked where you got your degree from? Never. Exactly. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Not ever. Not one time. I can't imagine that that's going to be a big issue. When they're sitting across somebody that they know is certified anything, I'm sure that's probably enough to to quell any fears. Yeah. Now, the FIRE movement, let's talk about that because it's become very popular lately, especially with younger people. So first of all, explain what the FIRE movement is and how can it benefit people? FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's sort of a movement that speaks more to having the choice of whether you want to work than actually what we think of as retirement, like not doing, you know, going on cruises and playing golf all day. The financial independence side seems to be the more crucial side because that gives you the choice of whether you want to retire early or retire for two years and then go back to work. It's building up a base of financial security so that you have the choice And so that you can weather things that happen that aren't your choice, like layoffs or illnesses, instead of waiting until you're 70 to do it. And it's really proving that it can be done, right? I mean, there's a lot of people doing it. And I think part of it is, you know, I read so much that part of it is changing your mindset about what your life looks like. I mean, what's really important to you? You know, there's some people who can, quote, retire early and live on $50,000 a year and others want to live on $100,000 a year. It just depends on your lifestyle. So if it's more important to you to have freedom in how you decide to work, you don't have to have the grandiose house or the grandiose car or whatever that requires more money and maybe working longer, not of your own volition, right? Right. It's very personal. And I think a lot of it comes down to mindfulness, like knowing what's important to you and spending money on that and not spending money on things that are not as important to you as 
financial freedom and security. We live in a very consumer-driven society. I mean, it's, it's impossible to leave your house or even to be in your house without someone trying to sell you something. And credit cards, you know, push you to buy more. They trick you into buying more use points. It's all about more and more and more. But if you take a step back from all those messages, you'll realize that a lot of the stuff you're buying or you have, you don't really want or need and that is draining your finances. Yeah. So really using a mindfulness as you're starting to earn money, deciding what you're going to spend money on instead of just randomly spending money on things makes this really possible for anyone. Yeah. And you always put things so much more eloquently than me. It's like you've done this before. So. <laughs> 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 now, you know, speaking of the media and marketing and all this stuff, there are so many TV ads out there now promoting reverse mortgages. And yeah. it sounds like this easy windfall, but it's really not that simple. And I've always felt this way. But after reading your book, it really solidified it for me because it pointed out so many pitfalls that I wasn't even aware of. Can you share some of these pitfalls that people need to be aware of before they go into a reverse mortgage? Well, I have to preface this by saying I am personally against reverse mortgages. I don't think people should use them, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So the thing is, it sounds like a good idea. You're living in your house, your mortgage is paid off or mostly paid off. And then someone gives you money, which is a loan, and you can stay living in your house. And then they get the house when you're not living there anymore. And that's the key. The key is when you're not living there anymore, which could mean you go to rehab for a month, that counts as you not living there anymore, you lose your house. And it may not be one month, some of them may be three months or six months or a year, but things happen where, you know, a husband and wife are living in a house and, you know, one of them has signed the paper and then that one ends up in rehab or one of them, unfortunately, dies. And then the other one can't stay in the house. And they didn't realize that as soon as that one person is not living in the house anymore, they can't keep the house. Most people do this because they need money to cover their monthly budgetary expenses. Right. It's not like they're doing this to go on a cruise. They're doing this because they can't make ends meet. The problem is if you already can't make ends meet, you may be in trouble with a reverse mortgage because they require you to keep up with tax and insurance property taxes and insurance payments. They require you to keep up with the maintenance of the house. And, you know, say for example, like you have to re-roof the house and it costs $10,000 and you can't really afford it. You could lose your house. So taking a reverse mortgage is just creating more ends really to make meat. I mean, it can. I mean, I'm sure they work for some people, but I think overall more people end up in situations that they didn't expect because of the reverse mortgage. They also have a lot of fees and people don't realize that. And that comes out of the money. I mean, they'll tell you what the fees are, but you don't always realize how much it's going to be in dollars and yeah. how much it's really going to drain. It just but comes the, down to the sales then. Yeah, the it's all about sales. telling you it's going to be okay. This is the way to do it. You're not going to get kicked out of your house, but all that fine print. <laughs> and, and that's what angers me so much about this stuff. You know, you see these ads on TV and it's this great thing. And it's, you know, they paint it as giving you comfort in retirement and everything. And it, it just really angers me because nobody tells you about that stuff. And, you know, I mean, people, when they're 
feeling desperate, when they're feeling the pinch, they're going to go for that because it seems like this easy way out. And it's uh, it just frustrates me to no end that all this stuff that, you know, at least if you have all the facts, then fine. You make your own decision. You take your chances. But that's what I really loved about your book is that it gave so many facts that nobody tells you. Ugh. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have some pretty strong opinions and I don't like to keep them to myself. Uh, I'm glad because, <laughs> you know, yeah, we really need that. Yeah. Scott's over here waving his hand. He's like, I hear you, sister. <laughs> Yeah. And again, I mean, they may work fine for some people in some situations, but more often than not, either somebody can't afford the upkeep and the loan gets called Mm -hmm. or they're out of the house and the loan gets called, which usually means you have to sell the house to pay the whole thing back in full. Gosh, that's so. So if you're going to do it, whoever's listening to this, if you're going to do a reverse mortgage, please, please talk to a HUD Uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, they have free counselors who will talk to you and explain every detail of your reverse mortgage. And in fact, if you're getting it through the federal government, you are required to sit with a counselor and talk about that. With private ones, you're not required to, but I recommend you talk to an independent, not the private lender, talk to a HUD counselor just to make sure that you understand exactly what's going to happen if you have any trouble on any of these fronts, because I don't want you to lose your house because you weren't expecting something. From a cynical standpoint, and I'm sorry to say I'm not a big, I don't trust a lot of government entities. (laughs) I'm sorry to say, it's just my experience has not been real favorable, but in that vein, do you feel like a HUD counselor is going to give you the true facts, not just with it. Because I've seen some of these government workers, and I'm sorry, some of them seem to be less than prepared, perhaps, for a position that they've taken on. So do you feel like they're absolutely qualified in giving the information? And more importantly, are they giving you accurate information in your estimation? (sighs) Well, and I know that's kind of a big question to answer, because obviously you can't speak for all of them, but... Well, that's what I was going to say. It it honestly depends on who you get. But talking to someone, even somebody who's not great at their job, is better than talking to no one. Can't argue with that. Because even if they're giving you wrong information, which I hope they're not, they're not supposed to, it still is getting a conversation going where it's making you think about things that you wouldn't have thought about if you didn't talk to anybody. Now, you have a section on divorce in your book and how the decisions that you make during this time can impact your retirement. Can you share some of the highlights about this? Because, you know, when people are going through a divorce, that's kind of the last thing on their mind. I know. And it's I have this pet peeve about lawyers handling divorce finances Because what seems like a fair split isn't always. For example, a $500,000 Roth IRA is not worth the same amount as a $500,000 401k because one comes with taxes and one doesn't. So fair isn't always fair to start with. But at the same time, there are some things that are really important to help minimize any tax issues and to make sure that everybody is in at least a decent place for retirement. One of the most, most important things, and it's really sort of a tax issue, is something called a quadro, 
which, oh God, the letters, uh, qualified domestic relations order. It's called a quadro and it's a special like legal paper that spells out how retirement assets are going to be split up. And when the court issues it, it gives it to the employer. If there's like a 401k or an employer plan to make the distribution. And if you do it the right way, the person who's giving the money to the other spouse, the person the money whose money is getting pulled out, won't have to pay taxes or penalties like they would on a regular distribution. Wow. If you do it without the quadro, that person ends up with taxes and penalties on the amount that gets pulled out. And that can be, I mean, it's usually a big amount, right? Yeah. So if you're doing $100,000 out of your 401k to your soon-to-be ex-spouse, and you do it the right way, they get $100,000, you lose $100,000, and that's that. If you do it without the quadro, they get $100,000, you get about a $30,000 tax bill, including a penalty. So you're really losing $130,000. You really want to make sure you have a properly executed quadro. If your lawyer does not know what a quadro is, talk to a different lawyer. This is really important and it can really screw with your retirement. Good to know. That is so important because something overlooked that seems so small like that can make such a huge, huge difference. So thank you so much for that. Now, I love that you covered Social Security and IRS scams in the book because they're so rampant right now. And this isn't even just about people that are retired or near retirement. I mean, it's happening to me constantly. So what are some of the most common scams and what can we do about them? Well, There's new scams all the time, but I want to start out by saying Social Security and the IRS will never, ever, ever make first contact by email, social media, or phone. Thank you. It will always be a letter in the mail for first contact. Always. Yeah, that's super important because all these people are getting these coming. I'm getting calls saying, you know, your social security number has been compromised or, you know, this is the IRS. This is your last warning because we've been trying to contact you and now we're suing you and everything. And, you know, it really it's irritates scary. me. It is. It's very it's scary. scary and, there's, and it's a lie. Yeah. They it's a always contact you through regular mail first. Right. Always. Now, obviously, you know, people that know that they are not having any issues are not going to fall for it typically. I mean, you know, it's not true. People are so afraid of the IRS that even if they don't think they have an issue, hearing that scares them and they respond. Man, that's so, so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. I'm glad you did because you're right. Yeah. I mean, I used to feel that way, too. You know, it's like. They come across as authoritative and they come across as, you know, I mean, it's the IRS and Social Security, so you better pay attention. And once they oh, yeah. once they've got you, they've got you. So good to know that, yeah, that is not they're not going to call you. They're not. And social media, I've never, ever heard. Are they actually contacting people by social media? Yep, oh they do. Gosh. Here's wow. another tip. If they tell you that you can pay with a gift card, it's a lie. <laughs> It's sound. No, they say like you can pay with a Visa gift card. Oh my They do. Gosh. Not like a, they don't say like a Chipotle gift card, <laughs> but like a Visa or MasterCard, right? I mean, yeah, I had a Starbucks card I was ready to use for my, my debt. Oh my gosh. That is but so- somebody who's intimidated and doesn't yeah. know. 
just they don't. I mean, if you don't know, you don't know. Right. And if you're already talking to the person, that means you've already engaged, yeah. uh, or you give access to a bank account or a credit card. Even you know that way, it's, it's that bad. will never ever happen. They will never ask you for money over the phone or through social media or through email. That that won't happen. Right. And so, if you're a worry wart like I am, because on the one hand, I am extremely cynical. I don't believe anything that you tell me right off. But on the other hand, I am, you know, definitely afraid of being in trouble and, you know, the results and whatever. So what I have come to do is just whoever calls me, I'm not going to engage with them. I'm not going to give them any information. I'm going to hang up, but then I'm going to call whoever it is. Like if it's social security and God forbid, I mean, I'm just going to ignore them at this point because I know that there's no issue. But if I had a fear that there was, then I would hang up and call social security directly. And that way you can make sure that you're getting the correct information out. You may have to wait on hold for like an hour, but, you know, at least you're going to make sure whether or not you really have an issue. Is that a good way of going about it? That's one way. Or also creating a My Social Security account. You can always check through there. And there are a lot of local Social Security offices. I mean, you can just walk in. And that way you're definitely talking to a person yeah, you know, now, in the office. So That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the same with the IRS. I mean, not that you can walk into an IRS office, but you can call the IRS and... Well, yeah. I would say with an IRS issue, if you work with a CPA or a tax preparer, I would go to them first. Okay. That's much easier. Let them deal with it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. If you have someone preparing your taxes, then start there. Cool. Good to know. Now, while we're talking about the My Social Security, this is actually something that everybody should have set up and it kind of tracks what your Social Security will be today. I mean, even if you're 21, it's tracking your wages and all that, right? And you suggest in the book that you should check this report on a consistent basis. Let's talk about why that's important. Well, your Social Security benefits will be based on how much you've earned in the past and how much you've paid into Social Security. You need a certain amount of credits and it's based on your 35, I think, highest years of earnings. So if there's a mistake one year and it doesn't get recorded properly, that could mess with how much your benefit is. And as Scott pointed out, government agencies make mistakes. Stuff happens. This is especially, especially important for people who are self-employed and paying their own self-employment taxes through estimated tax payments and things like that, rather than through a payroll service. It's even more important if you're self-employed to make sure that if you are in fact making your self-employment tax payments, that they are showing up on your My Social Security account. So if you find mistakes, you just call Social Security to have those reversed? Yes. Do you just need, I don't know, like like if you're working for an employer, I guess you would just need pay stubs. If you're working for yourself, probably your tax returns and stuff like that to you do. prove it, right? Right. Because, I mean, you, it, within the realm of possibility that your tax payment, which is supposed to, as self-employed, is supposed to be allocated between income tax and self-employment tax, it's possible they get that wrong. Gotcha. And then it, or a lot of people don't realize they're self-employed and don't pay self-employment taxes. And that means none of their income, if they're not paying self-employment taxes, that income isn't counting toward their future social security benefits. Ah, and that's a big one. Okay. Good to know. So yeah, always check that report on a regular basis and clear up those mistakes now because they're going to come back to bite you a lot of years from now if you don't. 
And it'll be very hard to prove something from 40 years ago. Yeah, I bet. Now, is there like a statute of limitations on how long they have to correct those mistakes? You know, honestly, I don't know. But they have a pretty easy to deal with website, Social Security. Surprisingly easy to deal with. (laughs) Cool. Honestly. Yeah. And it's very, it has a lot of information in pretty clear language. And it tells you really specifically, if this happens, call a person. If this happens, go to your My Social Security account. If this happens, walk into an office right away kind of thing. We're pretty good about that. Great to know. Now, literally right after your book was published, the SECURE Act passed. Wouldn't you know it? I know. (laughs) So this made a bunch of changes, you know, for retirement accounts and 529 plans. So if you wouldn't mind, let's just cover some of those. So some of the highlights of the SECURE Act are that you can still contribute to a traditional IRA after you've reached age 70 and a half now, and you didn't used to be able to do that. So if you're still working and you have earned income, you can keep putting money in. Until you're 72, right? Uh, No, there's no age limit anymore. Oh, that's right. Um, Putting money in as long as you have earned income from employment. And required minimum distributions, the age for that went up to 72, up from 70 and a half. So you have an extra year and a half before you have to start pulling money out of some of your retirement accounts. Nice. That is also good. That doesn't mean you can't do it sooner. It just means you have to do it by then. Right. And for anybody who doesn't know, requirement RMDs, required minimum distributions, are for any retirement account that you took a current tax break for. So a traditional IRA, a 401k, a 403b. So anything that gives you a tax break today means you have to pay taxes later. So any of those accounts are the ones that have RMDs tied to them. Roth IRAs, for example, you never have to take that money out if you don't want to. And the RMDs are important because there's a huge, huge penalty, right? I think it's 50% if you don't take your RMDs. Yeah, you have to pay a really big penalty if you undertake your required minimum distribution. Okay. You can't, and also people get confused. That's the least amount you can take. You can take more. That's right. no problem. You yeah. just can't take less, or you're going to get hit with a nasty, nasty penalty. I think it's the only time in life that you're going to be penalized for not taking money. <laughs> well, it's because you haven't paid tax on that money right. yet. Yeah. And they want you to pay tax on it. <laughs> right. Now, the 529 plans were the thing that I really thought was exciting about the SECURE Act, because now you can use your 529 plans, as I understand it, for homeschooling and even to pay off student loan debt, as well as like K through 12 education, right? Well, yes, you can use it for homeschooling. You can use it for private or public school in, you know, elementary and high school. You don't only have to use it for college. And you can use up to $10,000 to pay down student loan debt. Now, I have a hard time understanding that. If you have money in a 529 plan, how would it be sitting there? So now you can use it to pay off student loan debt. But if I've got 10000 in my 529 plan, didn't I already use that to pay before I took out the student loan? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. It may not be for the same person. A person could have dropped out of school. There could be situations where that's happening. Now, the other thing that I thought was really cool about the SECURE Act is that you can actually withdraw $5,000 or up to $5,000 from your 401k penalty-free to pay for the birth of a child or to adopt a child, right? That is true. 
However, penalty-free doesn't mean tax-free. So you will still have to pay current income taxes on that money. And you'll also lose all the growth and the amount from your retirement savings. But if you, you know, kids are expensive. And uh, sometimes it's because you can do it penalty-free, it can make really good sense in your overall finances to do it that way rather than going into debt to have to pay off those bills. Yeah, definitely not the ideal thing that you want to do, but it's good to know that it's there if you have to go that route. But that's an interesting question. If you were faced with that and needed $5,000 to pay for the birth of your child, would you make the decision to use a loan or some other kind of debt to pay for that? Or would you take the 401k withdraw penalty free, which one do you think would be the best way to go? What would I do? Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. First thing, remember, so that $5,000 isn't really $5,000 because you have to pay tax on it. That's right. Right. So it's really probably more like $4,500 to start, Mm -hmm. you know, not more than $4,500. So medical debt often does not come with interest if you work it out with the provider. So that's an option too sometimes. Like if you can pay it off within a year, but you can't pay it off right now, usually often providers will do that. It's probably not the same with adoptions because those tend to be cash intensive. I don't know. I think it's really hard to answer that without the full financial picture. Right. But for some people, it definitely will make sense to do it that way rather than going into debt if those are the only two choices. If you're just doing it because you don't want to use up your savings or something like that, then it's a terrible idea. Sure. And I think that that makes the point that whatever way you choose to go, take the time to stop and think about it and look at all of the options before you just jump into this that might on the surface look like a good idea, but you may not have all the facts of how it's going to impact you later. Well, you know, and that's the thing where, like I said in the beginning, that you can't look at these financial decisions in a pocket because they're part of a big whole. If people keep looking at things as one transaction at a time instead of a big overall plan, they're going to end up in a less secure financial situation. Whereas if you figure this stuff out beforehand and you look at it as a giant whole and figure out where the money coming from makes the most sense, that's really the best way to go about it. So you as a financial mentor, you're a CPA also and in your busy season now with taxes, but on a regular basis, do you also counsel with people on making these kind of decisions and looking at all of their resources and options to help them get a plan for these kind of things? Absolutely. I did it last week, actually, because it is sort of a holistic thing. And, you know, if you go to an investment advisor, they're only going to look at that. If you look at a debt counselor, they're really only going to look at that. But big picture is often a more important thing to know, because then you can figure out which area is the most important and how to do it without sabotaging yourself accidentally. Okay. So if people want to get in touch with you, want help with planning these kinds of things um, with all of your other services, they can go to michellekagancpa.com 
and also singlemomcpa.com. So Michelle Kagan with one L, by the way, michellekaganCPA.com or singlemomcpa.com. And I also wanted to mention there's not enough time to talk about everything great in this book, but some of the other highlights include deciding when to take Social Security, the importance of timing when applying for Medicare, and how it can impact you for life. Because then that's a huge one. You know, if you've got oh, yeah. parents that are at that age, that's a, a huge thing that you really need to be aware of. Also, the differences between 401ks, Roth, and traditional IRAs, retirement plans for the self-employed or those working in the gig economy, annuities, protecting your assets, robo-advisors. I'm telling you guys, if there's anything that you want to know about retirement for you, your kids, your parents, you got to get this book, Retirement 101. Hey, can I add one thing about Medicare? Absolutely. Okay. So I said Social Security has a great website, easy to maneuver, easy to understand. When I was writing the Medicare chapter, I honestly thought I was going to vomit. It was just so complicated and there's so many different dates and so many different plans and plans are allowed to change things in the middle of the year without telling you and plans go out of business in the middle of the year without telling you. It's so complicated that I don't honestly understand how anyone figures this stuff out on their own. Not to scare you, but (laughs) Medicare is really tricky and if you're almost ready for it, like if you're close to 65, you should start looking at it before you have to make those decisions because it can be really tough to figure out. Yeah, definitely. And the one thing that I'll add to that is that I've talked to people before about this in the vein that if you don't take Medicare at the right time, it can increase your premium for the rest of your life. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So I want to make sure people are really aware of that because, yeah, this one mistake is going to be costly to your pocketbook for the rest of your life. So definitely got to check out her book, Retirement 101. Talk to Michelle and we're going to put all of your links you know, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for all of your time, all of your information. I always learn a ton from you. I always love talking with you, Bobby. You ask really tough questions. (laughs) A big sensible thank you to our guest professor, Michelle Kagan, CPA, financial mentor, and author of Retirement 101. You can learn more about her at michellekagancpa.com or singlemomcpa.com. Sorry for the hard questions, Michelle. I really wasn't trying to put her on the spot. It's just that her book is jam-packed with so much info that I think is really important. I always try to get as much out of her as possible. And every time we talk, she makes me think differently, which brings up even more questions. Michelle is a wealth of knowledge, and I highly encourage you to pick up her book and work with her to get answers to your questions. It could greatly improve your financial life. Like I said, she's a machine with these books. Her newest is called Debt 101, and I'm going to have her back on for the next episode to chat about it. In the meantime, let's look at ways to find money to save for retirement, even if you feel like your budget is already bursting at the seams. If you're on such a tight budget that you honestly have no pennies to put toward retirement, if there's only enough in your paycheck to cover the necessary bills, feed your family, and put enough gas in your car to get to and from work, how will you ever save for retirement? Well, the first step is focusing on the resources you have instead of the ones you don't. For example, do you have a 401k? If you do, this is a great place to start. If you get a tax refund each year, you can contribute to your 401k and change your withholdings to compensate for it. 
In other words, if you can't afford to lose $50 from your paycheck, but you want to contribute $50 to your 401k, change your withholdings to balance it out. If you're claiming one, start claiming two. This gives you a bigger paycheck, right? So now you can use the extra money to contribute to your 401k and still have enough to pay for all your necessities. The numbers I used are just an example, but you can use the IRS withholding calculator to play with the numbers or ask your HR person to walk you through it. And if you do it right, this won't create a tax bill at the end of the year because your adjusted gross income is lower thanks to your 401k contribution. So it's a win-win-win. Now, if all that was a bit confusing, consult with your tax person or CPA. Now, let's say you don't have a 401k. You can basically do the same thing with an IRA, which you can easily open on your own through Fidelity, Vanguard, or another investment company. I opened one through Fidelity and it didn't cost me a dime. There are some fees once you start contributing, but they come out of the money you're contributing or investing, so it's not like you're going to get an extra monthly bill. It's a fairly quick and really inexpensive thing to do. In this case, you'll have to make the contribution because it's not coming directly out of your paycheck, but you'll still get the tax deduction so you can still play with your withholdings the same way I suggested with the 401k. Do your own research on this to make sure you don't get hit with the tax bill, but this has worked for me and it could work for you too. There are a lot of apps out there right now that will round up your purchases to the nearest dollar and invest the change, and these sound like great ideas to get started when you only have pennies to spare. But make sure you're aware of all the fees that come with it. A lot of these online banks and apps charge you a transaction fee for every purchase, and there are other fees too. So you may find out you're spending more than you're saving when you crunch the numbers. If that's the case, don't despair. You can do this on your own. If you're budgeting, you're tracking your spending, and that means you can round up your own purchases and move your own money into a savings account that you can then contribute to a retirement account. And something that's worked really well for me has been using my credit card rewards for retirement savings. I have a Fidelity Rewards credit card, which gives me 2% cash back on every purchase and allows me to have that cash back go directly into an IRA. I only use my credit card for purchases I would make anyway. Gasoline, groceries, things like that. They're all within my budget and I track them as if they came directly out of my checking account. And I pay off my credit card balance in full every time I get paid. If you can do that, it's totally worth it. Then it really is free money that, in my case, is being saved for retirement. But if using a credit card encourages you to overspend and you can't pay off the balance in full each month, don't do this. The 2% cash back is hardly worth the interest you'll pay on those purchases. I think my interest rate is around 17%. Honestly, I don't really pay attention because I don't pay any interest. But it doesn't take a math wizard to figure out that 17% is much more than the 2% cash back bonuses, tax refunds, birthday or Christmas checks, any unexpected windfalls can also be used to save for retirement. Now, I know there are a lot of things to save for and you have to find your best balance. But remember, when you're saving and investing, your money is growing. So the sooner you can begin that growth, the larger your account will be when you get to the point where you have to rely on that money. If you're looking for other places to find money to save for retirement, check out my blog post, 10 Surprising Ways to Save Money at SensibleChat.com. That's sensible with a C. 
Balancing all these things is what makes a budget so important. So if you haven't created one yet, start now. At least make a list of your goals. This will help you find your why and make it easier to see how your budget will free you, not restrict you. Remember, debt is restrictive. Overspending is restrictive because it costs you for as long as you're paying for the privilege of overspending. Budgeting is freeing because it puts control in your hands so you can focus on what's really important and make sure you have enough money to follow through. If you need help getting started, go to sensiblechat.com and schedule your free budget consultation with me. I'd love to help. You can also download the free 10-day budget challenge, which will take you through the steps of creating a budget. Thanks for listening and join me for the next episode where we'll chat with Michelle Kagan about her book, Debt 101. She'll share a ton of info on understanding debt, sidestepping the landmines that come with it and avoiding scams along the way. Until then, keep spending and saving the sensible way. That does it for this episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. Links for all the resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. While you're there, find your favorite app to be sure and never miss a show. On social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to Sensible Bobby through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. 